All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again on this side of the break, Richard Mayberry. Uh, Richard, before we went to the break, uh, we were talking a little bit, a lot, in fact, about Islamic politics and what's going on in the Thousand-Year War and how what we're seeing now is a continuation of what's been going on for for hundreds of years. Recently, of course, the big news has been the assassination of bin Laden when we invaded, actually, we clandestinely went into Pakistan without the government knowing it and supposedly took out bin Laden. And I know that you think this is could have some very significant ramifications I, for America. I'm thinking in terms of a New Yorker. I hear uh, our local officials are talking about how there's likely to be a, or there could be the, uh, an increased likelihood of a terrorist attack in the United, in New York City as a result of the assassination of Bin Laden. But first of all, let me ask you: Do you think uh, Bin Laden actually has been killed? I, I have to believe what we're told. But uh, Adrian Salbucci, who we've had on this show, has talked, actually put up a, uh, put up a uh, uh, recently did a, a video on the Internet, and he talked about how there were something like eight previous examples where the mainstream media said that bin Laden had been killed, and in fact he hadn't been. Uh, and then they dump his body in the ocean so nobody can really see what's going on. What do you think? Uh, do you think, are we to believe uh, the official accounts? Well, I don't believe them. Um, the uh, if you if you stop a hundred Americans on the street and you ask them, is the government telling you the truth about the economy? I'm sure that out of the hundred, ninety nine will say, are you crazy? You think I was born yesterday? Of course they're lying about the economy. Uh-huh. But then you switch over to foreign policy, and people believe what the government says, hmm. and and that always astounds me. Um, you know, the government points to some group of people in some other country and says, they're our enemies. We got to go kill them. And the Americans say, "Yeah, let's go kill them." And and you know why this disconnect? Everybody knows they lie about the economy, but they want to believe what they say about foreign policy. I don't know. Anyhow, um, we we do know um, that um, Saddam Hussein uh, had at least fifty doubles, and um, we don't know how many doubles that uh, Osama bin Laden had, but it's probably you know dozens, I would think. Um, and the only people we have have to to uh, give us information about 
whether it was really Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein who was killed are people in the government who lie. Um, so how can you believe that the guy's really dead? Right. I don't know. How can you know for sure, right? Yeah, I mean, he might be. Yeah. But we, we, you know, there got to be somebody, some people that are going to tell us that we, we can believe, you know? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, so let's assume that he is uh, or not, but what do you think the ramifications, the bigger ramifications of us going into Pakistan clandestinely to assassinate somebody who might be revered actually in that country by a lot of the population? Right. Um, I think it's one of the most dangerous things anybody ever did because you know, I, I have written numerous articles about Pakistan. It is widely regarded all over the world as the most dangerous country in the world because it's extremely politically unstable and extremely corrupt. And um, it's nuclear. Washington invaded a nuclear power. We don't know how many nuclear weapons the Pakistani government has. Um, it's um, widely regarded as, you know, many dozens. We don't really know. Any one of those dozens of nukes could, could wipe out an American city without any trouble. And um, the Washington has invaded this really, really flaky nuclear power and killed one of their heroes. Mm. Um, so um, that doesn't seem to me to be a very smart thing to do. Mm. And there's another angle to this, too. Um, when you're at war with somebody, um, you can't end the war unless you can force a surrender out of someone who has enough prestige to order his troops to lay down their arms mm -hmm. and that they would follow. So, you know, the Israeli government um, is one of the really great examples. They they're always killing the leaders who have the ability to surrender. Mm -hmm. And and so the war just goes on and on and on decade after decade because there's nobody over there that can order a surrender. <laughs> so, you know, as soon as you get that prestige that you could actually give that order to surrender, they kill you. <laughs> so um, now we're in that situation here in in Afghanistan. They killed the guy who can who can give the order to surrender. So there's just no no end in sight. Yeah. And there's no way this makes makes the world a better place having taken him out. Even though that, of course, is the official line in the U.S. is that now we can rest a bit easier because Bin Laden. Uh, is supposedly taken out, and now, of course, uh, at the same time, we're being told that there's heightened alert in New York City because of a possible <laughs> blowback. Yeah. None of this makes a lot of sense to me, Richard. Another thing that I really would like to get you to comment on has to do with the, sort of the global change in the geopolitical scene. You talked uh, in the Thousand Year War, that book again, about the new axis, uh, who the main enemies of the United States government are turning out to be right now. Could you comment on that for a minute, perhaps? Uh, yeah, the, the federal government has, I, I think at last count, um, there are 16 enemies. Um, mm -hmm. The governments of Iran, Syria, Libya, Russia, or at least groups in Russia, groups in China, um, um, North Korea, 
Yeah, and I can't remember them all off Serbia, my head. Serbia, that one, Serbia. Uh, yeah. yeah, Serbia. Um, you know, these are people who who really hate the U.S. government for one reason or another, and they are known to work together against the U.S. government uh, on occasion. Uh, not all of them, let's say, but they'll come together and, and uh, help each other uh, if somebody wants to take a stab at Washington. Um, and, you know, I, I coined the term New Axis for this group, I think in 1996 is when I did that, um, and, and tried to point out that, um, that Americans don't know that there is this collection of enemies out there that work together with each other. And I really strongly suspect that the New Axis um, was a big player in 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, there were probably Russian groups that were behind it, maybe Chinese groups, um, and you know, Syrian, Libyan, Iranian, who knows, mm-hmm. um, who were helping each other put this thing together. Now, bin Laden, for some reason, uh, was picked out by Washington as the leader who was the mastermind and all of this. I don't believe that for a minute. I think that at most um, bin Laden was a gopher. Um, and um, he, uh, you know, Washington just made him important. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, but you know, nine eleven I think was perpetrated by a lot of different groups around the world, and Bin Laden was just a helper in that in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I don't know. I don't know what else to say beyond well, that. Well, let me ask you though. Uh, closer to home in Latin America, we are in South America. We have Venezuela, we have Ecuador, we have um, uh, Bolivia. Those are countries that are that are that seem to be somewhat hostile towards the United States. And you have some more that might be more in the middle, like like Brazil and Argentina, perhaps. But do you think that there could be an alliance with maybe Cuba? You could throw in there as well. Yeah. Uh, that that those lesser countries in this hemisphere could be possibly part of uh, part of that that uh, alliance. Well, uh, yeah, in a sense, uh, we I, we come back to what I was talking about earlier about each office in the government has people in it with their own agendas, and every government around the world is like that. So, in each of those countries that you mentioned, there are undoubtedly some groups in those governments that would like to hurt Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, because Washington hurts them. It goes yeah. back and forth constantly. So, yeah, there are people with those agendas in those countries, but that doesn't mean the whole population hates Washington or that even the central government, the heads of the government, hate it. But there are probably groups who are allied with other groups in other countries who work clandestinely against Washington. And as long, let me be really emphatic about this, as long as Washington continues meddling in other countries, then it's going to be the target for these kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody wants some foreign power in his country trying to steer his politics and and, um, create some new way of life for him. Um, and, And so, you know, these people, in their minds, they're defending themselves against Washington's encroachments. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to solve any of these foreign policy problems until the American people start demanding that their government stop meddling in other countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I have to ask you about China. You mentioned China, parts of China, I think is the way you put it. China is an awfully big country, of course, a very big nation. So uh, this, so my question is, how does China fit in on the other, you know, on the among the enemies? Because, you know, we've depended on China for financing our, our debt uh, for quite a while here now. And I want to sort of uh, get into the economic picture right now, if we can, and perhaps uh, segue into that through mm. through the discussion of China. But uh, you know, it seems to me that we are now competing. Uh, the U.S. is competing with China for a lot of the natural resources, starting with energy around the world. We want, and and we have this military uh, industrial complex that goes around and tries to. It seeming seems to me. Uh, is not unrelated to our interest in in natural resources around the world, and John Perkins, who's talked about that on the show, many other people as well. What do you think then? Um, how does how does China fit into this equation? I mean, China, as an economic power, a growing economic power, while we are finding ourselves our own economy being weakened, uh, I would say, decaying from within with all this debt and living beyond our means for so long. How do you see this playing out? Uh, do, do you see do you see the possibilities of uh, the United States military industrial complex being decaying and rotting from within because we don't have the economic wherewithal? Can we expect China, if they are a part of this new axis, to continue to to buy our treasuries? What do you what do you think? Well, um, yeah, will the U.S. military decay? That that's coming. Uh, I think it's a few years down the road yet. Um, but but yeah, the, the U.S. government is going to lose the ability to finance, you know, the military and an awful lot of other things mm-hmm. uh, because it's essentially U.S. government is committing economic suicide, and and its most of its power is just going to go away, um, and it won't be able to support this military structure or a lot of other things after that. Um, so that's on the way, but not here yet. Um, now, as far as China is concerned, the, to me, the most important thing to understand about China is that there is no China. Mm. Um, the, China is a collection of, um, you know, who knows how many dozens or, or scores of, of different cultures, and uh, um, they were forced together by the, the regime in, in Beijing um, into what we think is a a country but it's not and you know within china each of these cultures or tribes or whatever you want to call them uh, has its own agenda mm-hmm. and each person in that tribe has his own agenda mm-hmm. and so the the people who um um can can get their agendas aligned with each other will form some sort of a task force let's say and and they will do things that will be they hope favorable to them. Same thing works that way in the United States. All these so-called special interests that are always trying to influence what goes on in Washington. These are individuals who um, have their own personal agendas, and they they come together in groups in order to try to steer things in directions favorable to them. It's that way all over the world in every government. So some of the people in China definitely want everything to just stay nice and quiet and calm, and they want to keep on buying U.S. bonds and earning a little bit of interest from that and enjoying the security that's in those bonds, whatever there is of it. Um, 
and they, they don't want anything to change. But it could be the guys in the office down the hall want exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. They want Washington to blow up, and they're out there at the same time <laughs> financing people like al-Qaeda. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> oh, interesting. Um, so th- this idea that there is a, a China or, or a Russia or an Iran or anything else, they, they don't exist. <laughs> Yeah, they've uh, been pulled together by force in many cases, countries that by uh, sometimes by colonial powers or whatever, yep. uh, and not natural uh, entities, I guess is what you're saying. So there's yeah. conflicts all around. That's right. But, but there is a sense, I believe, that China is now buying fewer U.S. treasuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. and I guess, you know, if you, if you believe, uh, as I do, that if you hold U.S. debt, well, certainly we've seen the dollar go down in value very considerably against other currencies and even more against tangible assets like gold and silver. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, from, a, from the perspective of a Chinese uh, investor or somebody who's holding dollars, why would you want to own U.S. dollars if our, in, if our inflation rates are, are higher than the interest rates and we're, we're getting paid negative returns, essentially? Mm-hmm. Um, I am of the opinion that the, the Chinese, whoever they are, um, don't own dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that dollars appear on the books um, as ca- accounting entries that show that they have all these U.S. bonds. But um, I, I say to myself, if I were them, you know, what would I do? Um, and what I would do is I would, you know, seeing that the dollar is diminishing in value all the time, the, the federal government has this little deliberate policy of removing the value from the dollar, of debasing it. So, you know, I'm Chinese. I see that. I hold a lot of dollars. What am I going to do? If I try to just go out there in the markets and sell them, I'm going to start a stampede, and I'm not going to be able to get out of my big pile of dollars until they're worthless. Mm-hmm. So everybody, you know, it's referred to as the financial balance of, of terror, mm-hmm. where everybody's afraid to be the first guy to start the stampede because everybody knows that, that none of them will get entirely out before the currency is worthless. So nobody starts the stampede. But the day will come when somebody will, and you know it. So um, what you do if you're Chinese, in my opinion, is you go out and you use those dollars um, as um, a pledge against the purchase of real assets. Mm-hmm. Now, the real assets might be a farm in Argentina. They might be a gold mine in Canada. They might be oil wells in Saudi Arabia, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But they're, I think that what they're doing is they're using their long-term dollar assets as a pledge against the purchase of real stuff so that the dollars appear to still be in their possession. On the books, it shows that they own these dollars, which they do, mm-hmm. um, but actually they're covered already. And if the dollar becomes worthless, they really couldn't care less because they own all these real assets all over the world. Mm-hmm. And ever since I put that theory out, which was several years ago, um, I've been hearing from people saying, I read your article about that, and I live in, you know, wherever, Costa Rica, and there's a whole bunch of Chinese here that are buying everything they can get their hands on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's probably what's going on. The Chinese don't care what happens to the dollar because they're already out of it. Yeah, well, it certainly would make some sense, wouldn't it, uh, for them to do that? 
Yeah. Um, well, okay. So the so the Chinese. If, I guess what I'm really getting at is the U.S. is in debt. It's indebted like never before. Trillions of dollars being created out of thin air. Of course, I like to say that fiat money, that, that debt is the raw material from which fiat money is, is manufactured. Mm-hmm. So there's all this debt. The United States is becoming increasingly insolvent. We're hearing that from many different guests on this show. Yeah. Um, where do we go from here, Richard? Uh, I know that you have leaned towards the, the fear of inflation. Uh, we just had the silver fall from about 50 bucks to 35 bucks this past week. Uh, gold has taken a big hit. Uh, do you do you see us? Uh, you know, are, is Bernanke going to keep printing money until finally um, we do see this? This somebody's going to capitulate and, and, and dump the dollars, and we're going to see a run on the dollar. We saw uh, Jim Lyles at the conference down in Phoenix talking about I think it was seventy one thirty eight as being a key level on the dollar index. We got down to about seventy two. And with this turnaround in the markets, the decline in the commodity prices and so forth, a slight increase in the dollar vis-a-vis these other paper currencies. Uh, and so for now, it seems as though maybe it's on hold. But do you see, do you see a, an eventual collapse of the dollar leading to hyperinflation? Is that still your, is that your bet? Uh, yeah, I would say it is. Um, the... Um uh, I, I can't envision it going any other way. I, I wrote an article about this, about the Federal Reserve running out of maneuvering room. Um, uh, the title of it is The Fed Caused Crisis is Here, I believe. And it's on the homepage of our website, which is richardmayberry.com. Mm-hmm. And I would really recommend everybody read that. I, I wrote it in January of 2010, and I think events since then have, have shown that the, the article was just right on the money. The Fed is in a position where it it cannot maneuver anymore, no matter what direction they go in. It's it's not the dire- a direction of um, let's say double digit inflation or recession. Mm-hmm. It's triple digit inflation or depression. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those are their choices now, and they are trying to to thread this fine line between the two, but clearly. They're not doing a very good job of it, mm-hmm. um, and um, I think the day is coming when they're just going to fall off of one side or the other. It'll either be a sudden depression or it will be a, uh, a runaway inflation as mm-hmm. people flee the dollar. It'll be a velocity-driven runaway inflation. There's an article on our website, too, about velocity, and to me, everybody looks at money supply, mm-hmm. but velocity, the speed at which the money circulates, is a far more important factor, and I would urge everybody to read that article on our website about velocity, as well as the one about the Fed running out of maneuvering room, and, and I think you'll see that um, they've, you know, the Federal Reserve has created a catastrophe, and now it's just a case of, of waiting till the whole thing actually blows up. Thank you, Richard, for bringing up that that uh, concept of velocity. And you might just mention uh, to people what that means. Uh, you're talking about how rapidly people turn their money over, right? I mean, rather, mm-hmm. when people feel safe and secure in a currency, they hang on to it. But when they start to believe that tomorrow prices are going to go up more, they start to get rid of those dollars or whatever the currency is to buy stuff, things that are tangible, things they might or might not need, but know that they're going to be more expensive in the future. Is that the psychology that takes place when you start to see an increase in velocity? And if that is is the case, 
where are we at now in terms of velocity in the United States? Now, inside the United States, I think that velocity is still very low. It's in stage one uh, out of three stages, I, I think. It, so, and, so Richard, that if I might, so if I might interrupt, that means that the con job in the United States is still fairly effective. People still right. believe somehow that this paper money that they're getting paid in mm-hmm. has got value. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Americans generally still believe in the dollar, and they still hang on to it. For instance, you know, um, when they start bailing out of a given investment, whether it's real estate or silver or whatever, what do they go into? Americans go into dollars. Right. Um, people around the world say, you know, well, maybe I'll go into dollars, but I don't like it very much. I'm scared of dollars. So I think the U.S. velocity is still you know, pretty low because Americans don't know much economics and they're still, they still trust the, the dollar in cash, whereas I think the uh, international velocity of the dollar is right on the borderline between stage one and stage two. Um, the, the world holds some dollars uh, because uh, there is some safety in them if you're in the middle of a war. It's better to have a currency from a country that doesn't have a war going on. Um, but um, I think that the, the world's just getting more nervous all the time because it's really clear the Federal Reserve <laughs> is so irresponsible. It's astounding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're investing in dollars, you're investing in Ben Bernanke. Yeah. Yeah. You really want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a what a frightening thought, you know. Uh, yeah. and, and, and as you're talking, Richard, it seems to me like we're. I think to put it in different terms, we're on a knife's edge. We go down one way or the other, and I guess maybe the reason you might bet on inflation as opposed to a deflationary depression is that their politicians and policymakers are always trying to to delay the day of reckoning. They're kicking the can down the road, aren't they? Yep. So rather than let the markets really work, and they would work in a deflationary depression, they are trying to overcome that under undertow of, of um, deflationary pressure. Would you say that? Yeah, I, I think your your expression, kick the can down the road, that, that is a very good picture of what Washington is all about. Mm-hmm. Let somebody else uh, deal with the difficulties and the problems. Yeah, the problem is they can't kick it very far anymore. They've made anymore. We're, that, getting, yeah. we're getting close to the day of reckoning, you would say. Yes. Which means, that, which means that, that people need to wake up and wake up very rapidly. You have been warning uh, your subscribers for many years in your excellent newsletter, uh, oh, which you. I might mention again is the U.S. and World Early Warning Report. Uh, and your website, again, so that people can go there is um, richardmayberry.com, and that's M-A-Y-B-U-R-Y. Is that mm-hmm. spelling your That's right. Name? Right. You so can spell to... it wrong, too, and it'll work. <laughs> it'll still work. Okay, all right. Yeah. Well, anyway, so richardmayberry.com, uh, to, I guess you can access the books that you have there as well. That's right. Mm-hmm. And your newsletter, which is excellent. I've been subscribing to it for a number of years now. I had a, actually a subscriber of mine, a retired dentist, uh, who, who highly recommended your work. And uh, when I started reading your stuff, I said, yes, I, I got it. This is, this is one of these newsletters that I look forward to every month. You get a lot of others. You say, oh, if i got time, I'm going to look at it. But this is one when it comes in the mail. I say, all right, this is at the top of my list. And one of the reasons for that, Richard, of course, we are of, of kindred spirits in terms mm-hmm. of our views on liberty and limited government and so forth. But one of the reasons your work is so valuable is that you have been spot on with respect to picking sectors that have done well for your readers. Your readers have done very well over the last number of years. Tell us, um, 
tell our listeners what you're suggesting to your readers now. What sectors should they be invested in? How should they be carrying out their investment strategies? Because we don't have a heck of a lot of time left, in my view, as you were just suggesting. Yeah. Um, I... Um I really haven't changed my approach on the invest- investing in a long time. Um, I, I think um, for the this is just you know kind of a general recommendation. Everybody's different, but um, you know an awful lot of your money belongs in the permanent portfolio strategy. There is a permanent portfolio fund. Uh, the symbol is PRPFX um, that has done very well here and. It's designed to, uh, you know, protect you regardless of what happens. And so that's the best strategy I've found for, for pure safety. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, um, um, some uh, gold, silver, and platinum coins um, and uh, some um, defense stocks, uh, the big four, uh, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, uh, General Dynamics, and Lockheed, um, they are, um, I, I think they are the most promising because war is going to be a, a, continue to be a feature of what we're going through for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the big four own um, the most congressmen, so they get the most money. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, that, and that's kind of the basic uh, um, group there. You could... A really, really abbreviated version is to buy permanent portfolio fund, that's PRPFX, mm-hmm. and then buy Fidelity Select Defense Fund, uh, FSDAX, mm-hmm. and you, you got the core of the idea there. Mm-hmm. Um, Excellent. You, you uh, I think the permanent fund there, was that an idea of Harry Brown, the late yeah. Harry Brown? Yeah, uh, right. I know you knew him well and uh, and, and revered his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that the, the very idea of trying to come up with uh, something that would withstand any sort of punishment um, was a brilliant one, and Harry carried it on out. and And boy, ever since 9/11, that fund has just done amazingly well. It's astounding. Mm-hmm. And um, I should point out, I've never been happy with it. <laughs> There's got to be a better strategy, but I've been looking for one for 25 years, and I haven't found it. Yeah, so and it's interesting. I mean, you you sort of feel that, that maybe if inflation's a bigger threat, that you want to load your your bets in that direction. Uh, but somehow, about the time you do that, the rug gets pulled out from under you. They some remarks are made by a Fed chairman or by a central bank uh, official, and the next thing you know, everything is reversing course. Has happened this past week, and so forth. So mm-hmm. interesting, That's isn't right. it? Yeah. Uh, right. Right. You know, Richard, we have just a couple of minutes left here, but I wanted to just um, read. In your last issue, the April issue anyway, uh, you talked about, uh, you quoted Doug Casey, who has been on this show a couple of times, and I actually mm-hmm. met with Doug down in Argentina recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see, uh, trying to look for his quote here. Uh, now I'm losing it. Anyway, Doug, Doug made some quote uh, about uh, sometimes it takes a lot, a lot longer for things to happen uh, than you expect. Oh, here it is. And let me quote Doug Casey. says, the trouble, uh, for, uh, the trouble forecasted by those of us uh, in this business usually takes longer to get there than we expect. But when it arrives, it, com- it compensates for its tardiness by being worse than, it, than we expect. Yeah. Uh, and then you went out uh, and pointed out a bunch of different bullet points about how, in fact, 
you were wrong because you were wrong in the sense that you didn't expect all of these major events to take place at once. And the reason I'm bringing this up now is because I want to impress on our listeners that there may not be that much time left. I don't know if you'd like to comment just on, on some of these events that seem to come all, all together here. Well, you got an example? I mean, uh, 9-11 occurred. The value of the, of the dollar has been falling. Uh, the deluge of dollars are also creating a mountain of malinvestment and so forth and so on. So yeah. I guess I guess the issue here is, and I, people would read your letter, your April letter, and they would get uh, all of these points. They're very, very, hmm. I think, very, very important to realize that, you know, uh, you've been warning about these things for many, many years, and now uh, they seem to be dovetailing. And as you alluded to a little while ago, there doesn't seem to be a, an awful lot of time before we head down yeah. one edge of the knife or the other. Yeah, um, it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, I always assumed that it would be a slow unfolding of of one sort of crisis after another, but it never occurred to me that all these crises would hit basically at the same time, mm-hmm. and and they would feed on each other, and and so suddenly we're in this position where I, I honestly believe it's within the realm of reasonable possibilities that tomorrow morning we could wake up and the dollar would be in a triple-digit inflation and people all over the world would be dumping dollars as fast as possible, and a week from now the dollar would be worth 1% of what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, because the whole world is scared, and um, when people get scared, they run to cash, whatever they consider cash. And the instant they decide the dollar is no longer cash, mm-hmm. then look out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we are in a position where that could happen. Um, and then on top of it, you know, we just invaded a nuclear power, Pakistan, and maybe they'll fire one back at us. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of crazy things going on, and the U.S. government just keeps getting deeper and deeper into all of them. There's no sense of a desire to withdraw from this insanity at all. They just keep digging deeper into it. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the world isn't going to put up with it a whole lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it really could happen in a matter of days. I don't think so, but, boy, if it does, it won't surprise me at all. One thing we do know, Richard, when we look at the charts of inflation, and I'm thinking of the German hyperinflation, that it's like a hockey stick. And you can meander along for quite a while with just slightly rising inflation, and all of a sudden there's an inflection point, and that thing just goes straight up like a rocket. Yep. And that is what I think happens, and I'm thinking that this goes to your your idea about velocity. When the psychology changes, when people say, uh-oh, this dollar is no longer money, then they go to stuff. And all of a sudden, that dollar doesn't buy anything. And that's why people like your readers, people like my readers, people who have listened to this show who are out ahead of the game, most people are more interested in probably in, you know, uh, American Idol or Desperate Housewives. But if, 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 we can, if we can basically understand what's really going on under the – and that's what this radio show is about. It's trying to figure out – that's why we have people like you on this show – to help people understand what's really going on, not what you're seeing in the mainstream, self-serving mainstream media. Rich, I want to thank you so much again for coming on this show. Always a pleasure. There was many, many more things we could ask you about. Uh, I wanted to get to this notion that that maybe we can have a peaceful revolution. Ron Paul has written a book about 
a revolution. You've talked already about how many revolutions occur where there's just an abdication of power because people realize that people hate them so much they just leave town. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's hope and, and uh, that, uh, that that what we have coming will be a peaceful revolution towards something that is better and not worse. And uh, I know that's what you want very much. Again, Richard, thank you so much. And one more time, your website is richardmayberry.com. Richardmayberry.com, folks, go there. Take advantage of all of the, the wealth of information that's there. And most of all, then, I would highly recommend you sign up for Richard's newsletter and also buy some of his books. Thank you, Richard. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back. Uh, we're going to talk to Frank Callahan. He's the CEO of Barkerville Gold Mines. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I failed to mention at the start of the second hour today the names of our sponsors. I like to do that. We're always grateful to the sponsors because they make this show economically viable. The sponsors for the second hour of the show are American Manganese, Barkerville Gold Mines, Crocodile Gold Corp, Entertopia Corporation, Go West Limited, Smash Minerals, and Trevally Mining Corporation. Well, and speaking of Barkerville Gold, I am pleased to have with me Frank Callahan. He is the president and CEO of a very good emerging new gold producer in British Columbia. Actually, they are now in commercial production. You know, I'm talking to Frank uh, Callahan, the president of the company here at the New York Hard Assets Show on Times Square at the Marriott Hotel. And I ran into an old friend of mine named Ian Gordon who told me, I might mention that Ian Gordon has been a very successful investor in the junior sector. Ian told me today that uh, Barkerville Gold Mines is his top pick. And that means something to me to hear Ian say that. He's a good stock picker. He definitely buys uh, companies that have long-term uh, growth potential. So in any event, uh, Frank, I want to welcome you back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Jay, nice to be back with you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have, have you with me. I, I failed to mention just now that there are about uh, 65.9 million shares outstanding. Uh, I saw you trading at about $1.61. That uh, gives you a market, market cap of $106 million, which is a lot higher than a lot of the companies uh, here at this show. But it's not very high, I would gather, for a company that's producing as you are. Uh, assuming that you're on track, and that's what I want to ask you about today, um, you know, how you're doing uh, with your first mine, which is the QR mine in British Columbia. How is that going, Frank? The QR is going a little, much better than expected. Uh, we started production last September, and uh, throughout the winter, and it was a little bit of a cold winter and a lot of snow, we didn't have one down day. Hmm. It's a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day operation, and it's, it's, it's running fantastic. I, I just can't even... Fantastic is almost even not the right word. It's just, 
it's just going great. So it's doing well. We know that when new operations start up, they almost always have some glitches, some problems, but things have gone out absolutely uh, as well as expected then and even better, I guess. It, it certainly has. I mean, it's, it's truly amazing just how well it's, it's a 900-ton-a-day facility. It's capable of doing 70,000 ounces of that location. We're currently running about two-thirds capacity right now. We're doing about 600 tons a day, and uh, that will actually ramp up. We'll exceed that coming into uh, next month. We actually start the second mine, which is called Bonanza Ledge. It's much higher grade, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be trucking there. It's about a 60-mile drive. It costs us about $50 an ounce uh, to actually truck it to that facility, and um, we'll actually be exceeding the 900 ton a day because that ore is actually a less complex ore, and the retention time is about a third, so we'll be running about 1,200 tons a day. Hmm. Wow, that's, uh, so 1,200 tons a day. What do you expect your production will be this year, Frank, factoring in those two mines now in production. So we'll be we'll do fifty thousand ounces uh, for mm-hmm. sure this year. Um, mm-hmm. We may exceed that, but we're sort of being a little bit on the conservative side and mm-hmm. fifty thousand ounces. And our, our last quarter we're doing we're showing a cash cost of about six hundred dollars an ounce. But I think the year average we should be probably in the five hundred dollar range. Mm-hmm. Five hundred dollars an ounce, and with uh, I guess golds are still around fifteen hundred dollars an ounce thereabout. So. The uh, the listener can do their mathematics easily enough to look at, and we're talking cash costs, aren't we, Frank? That's correct. You know, what's really interesting is that uh, when we send this to Johnson Matthey, of all of the shipments that we've made to Johnson Matthey, there's only one, and it was in the month of December, that we actually got less than $1,400 an ounce for. It was like 1390 something I think, was the mm-hmm. December shipment. But all of the other shipments have been over $1,400 an ounce, and I think last week's uh, fix was we got I think fifteen sixty an ounce for it for mm-hmm. the last batch that went through. Mm-hmm. Well, now you have a, a nine hundred ton per day mill on which you're uh, you're feeding ore from the QR and from the Bonanza Ledge. Uh, you also recently purchased a new mill for three uh, a three thousand ton per day mill. Uh, what are you going to do with that, Frank? We have our third deposit, which we're anticipating having that up and running for 2013. Uh, government, both the federal and provincial governments, have advised us that we would have our permits in place uh, during the next 12 months. And uh, that 3,000 ton a day facility will be going for the, it's called the Gold Quartz Mine. It's at the foot of Cow Mountain. And uh, we're, we're expecting that grade to be somewhere in the 4-gram material. A 4-gram range is what we're sort of expecting that to be. Four gram material, four, and as I as I understand it, we're talking about an open pit mine. That's correct. It is, is open it, is pit. Uh, we initially had an initial resource of a million ounces, uh, but in order to make it compliant, some of the early holes that were done in the 80s were not compliant, so we're actually twinning those holes right now and drilling deeper. So we're expecting to bring that back up well over a million ounces at, at that one location. What is your 43101 there now, Frank? It's half of that. It's uh, just a little bit better than half a million ounces. Um, and that's because the holes, as I had mentioned, were, that were drilled in the 80s are deemed not compliant holes, so we're twinning those and get that back over a million ounces. But the gold hasn't gone anywhere. we just got to go back and twin the holes. So you have a drill program in place there now to double the resource uh, potentially, and might you do that how soon? Well, um, so there's currently two drills working on the property right now. One's on Cow Mountain doing infill drill holes, and the other one's actually on exploration. It's over in the Bonanza Ledge. We were the first company, actually, in British Columbia in January. We were permitted to drill 1,300 drill holes, or 300,000 meters. So each year we've got a $10 million exploration program for the next three years, uh, $10 million a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's all about getting more ounces right now. Mm. So 3,000 tons per day and 4 grams 
open pit sounds like it should be a relatively low-cost operation. Do you have a preliminary economic assessment or any kind of uh, economic studies done on this, Frank, that would give our listeners some sense of what the economics might look like? Unfortunately, uh, no, we don't. We, mm-hmm. that, that's actually in progress right now. It's being done by Mintech out of Tucson, Arizona, mm-hmm. and uh, that's actually in progress right now, so I don't have any numbers as mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. I would only suggest, uh, uh, you know, without, without uh, I think it's maybe a little bit risky to, to go out on a limb and say too much, but what I can say, and I think you would agree with me, Frank, is that four grams per ton is a pretty good grade for an open pit mine to start with. And in this case, I guess your mill is going to be basically right there on site, so you don't have trucking costs. That's correct. We're actually underground mining four-gram material right now and from as an underground mine, and it's economic at these prices. And, and let's hope they just stay there. And I'm actually fully satisfied with the price rate where it is right today. Um, yeah, this should be a, a very, uh, a very economic uh, facility. That's for certain. And it's probably capable of doing. I'm going to suggest somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100,000 ounces a year at that location. Hmm. Okay. So let's just talk about what the down the road potential is here. If you're looking at 2013, I think you said you hope to get this into production. Is that right? That's correct. And so if we're looking at that having a potential of 100,000, maybe not right away, would you see that ramping up over time? That's correct as well, yes. Uh, but let's say, what, what, do you, what is your vision, what is your goal in terms of gold production longer term, Frank, if you could tell our listeners? You know, it's, it's, the board's actually trying to turn the company into somewhere in, in excess of 100 to 150,000 ounce a year producer mm-hmm. between both deposits. Actually, there'll be three deposits actually in, in, in production uh, at, at the same time. So between all three of them, it should be a number, something like that. That's what we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, I mean, the property is about uh, 27 miles long, and it's, it's a gold belt. Um, you know, it's, it's a history. It's, it's, this is one of the more prolific gold camps in British Columbia. Historic production is about four million ounces. That's recorded production, mm-hmm. probably much greater than that. But we've got an awful lot of property to look at. And, and uh, that, so now we have, we have two drills, as I mentioned, going. By the end of the week, there'll be two more going. And mm-hmm. by the end of the month, there should be six drills turning on the property. So there'll be lots of news coming out on a, pretty much on a, on a weekly basis. So we can expect some news on a regular basis. So uh, when do you think you might be able to, how long do you think it might take for you to uh, uh, to basically double the resource here, assuming that that is in the cards? Um, this year, it's yeah. our intention. Well, this year. We, yeah, this year. It's, we think that, uh, well, the, the 43101 reports are, or, and the um, assessment reports are sort of in progress now, and I'm, I think that at the end of June is when we're anticipating having the, uh, the resource calculations and the pre-feasibility studies completed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly, uh, you have a lot of blue sky then beyond this, uh, the 100,000, 150,000 looking longer term, of course. Uh, if the economics, mining economics stay favorable, it certainly does look. Have you a, have you a sense of, uh, Frank, of um, how you're, with a $100 million market cap or so, how you stack up uh, versus your peers? Well, that's a great question. Um, for your listeners, the company was just taken out. They're about 60 miles away or as the crow flies from where we are in Richfield Resources. They were just taken out at $550 million market cap at about $10 a share last month. Um, they were reporting um, 4 million ounces inferred and indicated, um, and they own 72% of it. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the grade there is about three-quarters of a gram. Uh, our, our, you know, our cutoff is, is much higher than that, and we expect to have 
you know, and again, this is a little bit of a forward-looking statement, but we expect to have more ounces than that. We haven't done a resource calculation, a complete resource calculation yeah. for five and a half years, so we've got quite a bit of drilling under our belt. That's mm-hmm. it's all being compiled right now, and I, I expect to, um, in, in, over, after this year, to exceed th- that, that amount of ounces. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Frank, but I can kind of see here why my friend Ian Gordon likes this story a lot and why he's allocated a, the biggest position in his portfolio to this uh, to this stock. You've got a lot of growth. Uh, you've got cost numbers that seem to be under, you know, making your current production very economic, so you shouldn't have to go out and issue a lot more shares to grow this company, which is really something that investors need to be aware of, of emerging mining companies. Thank you, Frank, for being with us. We'll have Thank to have you. you back again sometime soon. Don't go away, folks, because Roger Wiegand is going to be back with me in just uh, a minute or two and to give a wrap-up on today's markets. Don't go away. Nice Thank you, Frank. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with Bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm pleased to have with me my partner, Roger Wiegand, uh, for a wrap-up on today's markets. Uh, Roger, tell us uh, what's happening in the markets today. Uh, let's uh, start with the equity markets, uh, the Dow and S&P, etc. Well, today uh, in stocks, uh, there were concerns in Europe having to do with all these credit problems in Greece and Ireland, but the Dow Jones futures right now in June are up uh, 69 points. Uh, the NASDAQ is up 22 points, and the S&P is uh, 1354. It's up a little over one point. Mm-hmm. So generally, the, the stocks were to the green. I mean, it's not a big heavy move today, but they did quite nicely. Mm-hmm. And the metals, of course, uh, moved along quite nicely as well. Uh, gold now is uh, j- uh, June futures, uh, $1,516, mm-hmm. up twelve eighty. And uh, July silver is 38.50. Uh, silver will not be denied. It just seems to come right back. It never did, Jay, go back down to the to, to the 200-day moving average, despite all that selling. I think that really speaks well for the power of of, the, of that market. I think the lowest we got was like 34 dollars and change, if I can remember, and 33. Well, $33 even was just about the 200-day average, and we never even got there. Mm. So consequently, you know, that is a very strong signal that there's more buying ahead in silver. The prices are firm. Our next uh, prediction on silver is uh, resistance at $42.85. Uh, there's another one higher at 44 and change, and then, of course, we go all the way back up to where we were at 49.85. I think that because of the velocity of the sell, and the depth of the sell in both silver and gold. And gold really didn't come off that much. It was a little over 100 bucks, But silver got hit pretty hard. It went from 49 to 34, 35. Uh, you can look at a 50% retracement at 42.85, but I think that they're going to come back a little more mildly than the previous rallies. That doesn't mean they're not buyers. They are. Uh, and I think the shares are a little slower yet because the broader stock markets really haven't come up as fast as we had expected with all these credit problems. But I think that uh, basically between now and the next two, three, four weeks, we're looking for one more up cycle, both in the metals and in shares and in most commodities. The U.S. dollar is flat at about uh, 74.70 right now, and as long as that doesn't get into a big bull mode, I think that uh, we're on pretty safe ground here to say that the rally should should start and continue. Mm-hmm. Well, what are the prospects for a, a sustained move? And we only got about a minute left, Roger. Thirty seconds for you. What what do you what are your prospects of a sustained move? We've got a sustained move, Jay, but it's not going to be a real strong one like we just went through. I think we will be sustained through maybe two or three weeks, and then we're looking to go flat and then sell off, and then we go into the summer doldrums, which are very choppy. And then, of course, in August, we start all over again for a big, long rally going all the way through to December. And the equity markets, you think, will be weak in the summer and then back in, up, up in the fall or what? Well, I'm, I'm worried about the equity markets in the fall primarily because of these uh, uh, credit problems in mm-hmm. Europe. Yeah. Uh, the U.K.'s got big problems right now, which was a surprise to, uh, to a lot of people. It wasn't to me because I've been reading and watching this for a right. couple months. Right. But, um, I, you know, as long as they can keep uh, all those problems in Europe under control, 
with the European Central Bank and some other ones why uh, okay. this fall could be pretty good. Okay, we've got to leave it go with that, Roger, because we're out of time. Folks, I'm sorry for that. Uh, next week, I want you to come back and listen to Professor Arbach, really interesting former Federal Reserve official uh, who is critical of the Federal Reserve. He'll be talking to us, along with Jim Lyles, uh, an expert uh, technical analyst to give his, his views on the various markets that Roger just talked about. In closing, I want to thank our staff, uh, the staff at Voice America, I should say, uh, starting with my uh, senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colomb, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Thanks to all of you for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.